Thank you for joining us on this episode of Design Wise. I'm your host, Jessica Shabbat. This episode features Boston interior designer and businessman, Eric Haydell. Eric has many accomplishments, including producing several product lines and starting up his own design showroom in the Boston Design Center. Eric is a really entertaining speaker and an astute business person. So without further ado, let's go now to that conversation. All right, thank you for being here today, Eric. So we are going to start with, where did you grow up? Um, so I actually grew up in South Louisiana, um, about 45 minutes southwest of New Orleans. Interestingly enough, I grew up where um, the bayous of Louisiana meet the plantations that we all see, the picturesque uh, Oak Alley salmon plantation with 12 oak trees and wow. Mississippi River and white birds and alligators and sugarcane. <laughs> so lots of things to be inspired by. And when did you realize you wanted to be a designer? Um, well, I think, you know, I'm still looking at my calendar to see <laughs> when I'm looking for that inspiration. Um, interior design actually chose me. Um, I went to school for public relations and journalism. So by all accounts, I intended to be the person who saved uh, some company from another oil spill um, and put out this great press release about it. Um, and I actually fell into a different career path and ended up in Massachusetts. And through that time and that change of 2008, uh, my roommate actually came home and decided that I was going to design school. He had decided I needed a life change at a very early age. I think of this as midlife, uh, my midlife crisis. Um, and I started design school. He signed me up for classes, gave me money to buy my first supplies, and off we went. Wow. And here we are, um, 10 years later, still trying to figure out where that inspiration comes from. And where did you end up going to school? So both my studies as a Master's of Interior Design at the Boston Architectural College, mm -hmm. um, and then also this past May, I finished my Master's of Science in Interior Architecture which is a research-based degree from the Boston Architectural College as well. I so didn't I even know that. Double master's. Yeah, in. I didn't even know that existed. It's a brand new program that they started piloting a couple years ago. Uh, I was very lucky to share the honor with another colleague and be the second graduates of the program. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, it's a sort of postgraduate, so it's really in-depth where we mm -hmm. sort of choose an area of study that interests us the most um, to benefit the industry. So it's really looking at what is missing and how could we make an initial impact as an individual in the most way. For me, it was business, design business. So how could we look at application that we know to be successful in business and make it subjective to the creative mind? So many of our colleagues are, are brilliant designers, brilliant decorators, um, but they can't run their business to save their lives and they surely can't paint themselves out of a box. Well, and you have a lot of different brands, so how does that work? Like, how did that come about? So the branding thing, I think, is probably where the inspiration comes from and where the passion is. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, studying public relations and really formalizing the understanding of marketing and people and research and data and putting it all together into this package to actually create something visual and communicating that out um, really is the essence of me and, and what I love. And so managing multiple brands and managing multiple images I think comes naturally. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know that it's a learned behavior. I've tried to quantify it a little bit uh, in this workbook um, that I'm going to be shopping around this coming fall um, to eventually publish, but it's a matter of just trying to understand and the dynamics, figuring out the puzzle pieces and putting them together. For me, I think that's the exciting part in managing that. Mm -hmm. So you, okay, so to go back to your degree in communications, right? 
Sure. So you got a degree in communications, then you went back to interior design school. What was your step after that? Like you went, you graduated from interior design school and then what did you do? You decided you wanted to have your own company? So it's really interesting. A few weeks ago, I had the conversation with a couple of entrepreneurs that I never saw myself as an entrepreneur. Um, and I'm not sure even today I still see myself in that capacity. Um, like design school, business chose me. Um, I can look across my life and see that some of the biggest jumps that I made were because someone pushed me off the cliff and said fly. Mm -hmm. Business happened the same way. Um, with our program at the Boston Architectural College, you're required to study and work. And so in 2009, as I was trying to navigate where I would land up, I interviewed with several large firms, several smaller boutique firms, and nothing was quite the right fit. But academically, I was required to find work experience. Mm -hmm. And so a friend basically said, hey, I have an office that needs some work done. I have a house that needs to be done. Let's take a stab at it. And as that sort of developed, she was gracious enough as an attorney to help me set up the structures of business. And so was born the Eric Hadle Design Company. Mm -hmm. um, and from there, it's really just kind of been standing over a mountain and being pushed every single time. So it sounds like you started a little bit with more of like a grassroots approach, like I want to do my own thing. I don't necessarily want to, and can't speak for you, but don't necessarily want to conform to someone else's idea of what a company should be. Like I feel like I have a good grasp of it and I'm going to just organically try and find clients. How did you go about, aside from that first um, client that was an attorney, how did you go about finding your first couple of clients? Well, I, I'll take a step back and just say that in finding the right fit in, in a company, it was less about I needed to do my own thing and more about I just didn't feel that they expressed the values that I thought were important in creating a relationship with the end user, with the client. So like, give me an example of what that might be. Sure. So I was in a large, uh, I was in an interview situation with a large scale firm and they were focused more on their process and what they produce and their image and the use of their materials. Uh, it was never focused on what the client's needs are, what the functionality of the space might be, or even what the integrity of the project demands. Mm -hmm. uh, it was more focused on them branding themselves in every single project than it was in being authentic and of value to the end user, to the client. So like for example, like they only do modern design and if a client has a more traditional bend, they would you know, push their aesthetic onto the client rather than listening to the client and what they want. Absolutely. And I would tell you that that was a pretty successful business model until mm -hmm. 2008, where yeah. people sort of what I call rubber stamp their design, mm -hmm. um, where it was, we always use this sconce, we always use this shade of blue, we always use this particular wall treatment, and take it or leave it. And that was happening in the commercial side and the residential mm -hmm. side, so on both sides of the market. And I just felt that that was not a place for me. Do you think that to some degree that was largely related to the fact that people just didn't have as much access to product, so they relied a lot on the company or the interior designer to give them the options, where now, because there's so much um, internet and house and Instagram and all that, people have a lot more, they're like the end user has a lot more access to product, and so they don't want only one option for a sconce that the interior designer always uses. Now they want to see five or six or... I think that's absolutely the, the reason is our end user, our client is, is smarter. And smarter not in the sense of they were ever stupid, but they're smarter because they're engaged. Mm -hmm. They're more informed. I mean, 
we're sitting here filming a podcast, right? right? Um, 15, 20 years ago, no one knew what that was. We didn't even have iBeats or iMusic at that time, mm-hmm. right? So we've, we've developed in such a way that we're engaging our client on different levels. There was no Pinterest. There was no house. Mm-hmm. There wasn't access to things. The trade industry was very insular. And now at the design center, we're encouraging the end user to come in and see and sit and experience large brands like Nike and Apple and Target uh, and BMW are all about user experience. Mm -hmm. And so when the client is living in that world, it's only natural that they're going to come to us and experience it. Mm -hmm. And that's where they're having more selection, more option to make those decisions. So is that what led you to decide to open your own showroom in the design center? How did that come about? So um, I'm going to go back to that. I just got pushed off the cliff again. Okay. Because... um, (laughs) I was very fortunate to be approached by a New England uh, retailer to design a collection of rugs. Uh, And Dover Rug and Home here has uh, four locations and said we'd like to take a chance and design something with a local designer. And I said, sure, I've never designed product before, but why the hell not? Mm -hmm. Um, And so began the process of that. When the design center heard wind of that, they said, you know, we have all this extra space that's sort of just sitting here, would you do a pop-up? Um, oh, that cool. has sort of become the, the latest trend yeah. in retail and trade sales is this pop-up experience. Again, going back to brand experience. And so what started out as a two-week pop-up was so successful, they said, why don't you stay for a couple of months? And a couple of months turned into a year, and a year turned into uh, last July us opening a permanent showroom on the fourth floor of the Boston Design Center. Congratulations. Thank you. That's awesome. So again, that sort of just push and go. <laughs> yeah, we're like a like a ball rolling down a hill, right? Like a snowball. Sometimes <laughs> I feel like that. I started yoga last week officially, and it was the first time that I realized that I could actually stop that ball and have a zen experience. <laughs> well, I think that it's a testament to your inter- internal drive that you get a little bit of a push or something kind of goes in one direction, and you take it and run with it, sounds like, to some degree. I think so. I, I like to think that that's part of the gifts that were that were given. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't seem like fashion. you're free falling because you're successful. So, you might get the little push, but then you're steering the car. Well, I <laughs> it was, I appreciate the sentiment of being successful. Um, I really do. I often stop and think about what really makes success, mm-hmm. and I think because I'm constantly challenging and reevaluating that, that sort of ties into that drive. Mm -hmm. I'm not resting on my laurels, you know, for lack of a better way to put it. I think I'm always looking for what's next. Um, I think growing up, I was probably super ADD, ADHD, just (laughs) undiagnosed at that time. Um, I think it benefits me now as a business individual because I'm able to constantly be driving Mm -hmm. and and seeking the next opportunity and looking, how can we connect better? How can we reevaluate what we've done? Um, and so that word success, I think, is an ever-moving word mm-hmm. for us. So, so in speaking of that, you were mentioning to me that you're redoing your website to incorporate kind of all of your brands. So tell me a little bit about the impetus of that and also you know, how it's been going and what you've really been focusing on from a business perspective as it relates to redesigning you know, your online social media presence. Sure. So we have a huge presence with Instagram and it's been very successful. It's bringing clients in. But what I've learned in that conversation, because I always ask in any interview, whether we move forward with the client or we we choose not to, I always say, how did you learn about us? Mm -hmm. How did you encounter the brand? Uh, Because it's very important data for growing as a business professional. And 
over the last two years, the response has always been Instagram. Can I see more? Mm-hmm. And so I started to question, well, why aren't we going to that more to the website? Because the website really is the living, breathing portfolio. It's the document. And so when that disconnect is happening, the question is, is how unified is the brand? Does the website not reflect what's happening on Instagram? Does not happening when you connect in person? There's a missing link. I always say the buckets all have to pour into one funnel because mm-hmm. it only comes out of one pipe, right? So that was the, the beginning of rediscovering the website. What was not being connected from Instagram to website to in person or even a, a podcast that we would have done or mm-hmm. a publication uh, hard copy? So where was it falling down? And the website seemed to be it. You look at the website today and it's clean and it's beautiful and it's simple, but it wasn't functioning in a modern way. It wasn't mm-hmm. functioning in the way that the end user could swipe left, swipe right, swipe up, swipe down, connect to the next um, adventure of sorts, go to another vendor that we've connected with or building that what we call SEO or search engine optimization, which is such a buzzword these days. Mm-hmm. And so it, it needed to be addressed for us. Um, because it wasn't all funneling together. It wasn't speaking the same language. And do you manage your own Instagram account? So I do. Uh, I do have a PR team that um, sort of advises on maybe with the content we should create. We look at what's going on in the industry. But there are two brand words or value words in the brand that are so important to me, and it's authenticity and being approachable. Mm -hmm. And I find the designers or businesses in general who choose to have someone else tweet, blog, Instagram, lose the ability to be approachable and authentic. Uh, I've met several colleagues who they have beautifully designed brands, amazing websites, great Instagram content, and then you meet them in person and literally you say, what the hell? (laughs) And it's because they've hired excellent PR teams. Mm -hmm. Um, Coming from PR, I recognize that it's an invaluable asset to have and to afford if you can, um, but you never ever will garnish the level of authenticity that is uh, held when you manage your own voice on the day-to-day. It's one thing to have outsource the brand image and have someone create that and create the website Mm -hmm. um, because those can be translated. Um, It's like a book, it's just a live book, Um, but your day-to-day interactions really have to come from you directly. That's a really interesting take, I think, especially because like you said, there's so many opportunities for PR companies, you know, to do it for you if you can, you know, have that in your budget. But you really can tell, especially on Instagram, you can really tell a difference between someone, you know, writing a more scripted kind of formal, you know, paragraph to go along with a picture versus something a little bit more fun and that, you know, represents their personality a little bit more. I mean, absolutely. And I sort of even now every morning when I post or every couple days when I post and even with the website development we're undergoing they're making decisions about things that I would say and I literally will look at my staff and laugh and say I wouldn't say that (laughs) and that's okay Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day that's what the brand represents it's that authentic voice um, that can't be found any anywhere else Mm -hmm. you know there are certain words that we use mannerisms that happen in the rhythmic of of our expression um, and those people see right through those because our high level brands have taught us about that experience and so you know when Nike puts out a a conversation somehow or another it's going to go back to their just do it that began in the 70s Right. right 
if that's missing, you realize that it wasn't Nike. It was somebody trying to fake Nike. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so it, you see that across the brands, and it's trickling down into small business. So has any of this for you been uh, off the cuff or a little bit more of an accident or because of your you know, experience in communications and PR? Like It's a lot more uh, maybe formalized in your mind, even if it's not communicated that way, than it might be for somebody else who doesn't have that um, experience. I like to think that everything we do is just sort of a happy accident, that, right? I don't want to be so formal and sort of confident in it. I think because confidence becomes arrogant and arrogance becomes failure in a lot of cases. I think that um, it, it starts out as an accident, starts out as an idea, and we put it out there. And if it works, then we build upon that. If it's not work, we retract a little bit, reevaluate, and move forward. So how do you judge the success? Like, how do you judge if it's working or not working? feedback right and and it feedback comes in multiple forms um there is a great website that connects your instagram account called Mm insight.com and literally it pulls metrics for you so from a marketing perspective you can really pull hard data to look at how many people are interacting how many people are seeing your post how many people liked your post at the end of the day it's more important to have metrics that are closely related to your goal and less of oh my god i have thirty thousand followers but only 50 people saw what i put out well that's not successful Mm -hmm. so one of the things that we do on a very high level is i actually curate my followers list Hmm. i actually every so many weeks go in and delete people that number one i'm not interested in their content and they've never engaged with mine Having those data points allow us to bring those numbers closer together so it makes us a greater value to measure what's successful and what's not. It also comes from your interaction of your closest friends and the people who comment. I get so many comments from people uh, that about something on Instagram that they meet me at an event. Well, that's hard data that allows me to produce feedback. Mm-hmm. So those are things that we take back and pretty much on a weekly basis as a, as a staff, as a PR team, as a close staff uh, internally, we talk about. We talk about what was successful. I ask my team every day that we post, did you see what I posted? What do you think? Mm-hmm. So it's a constant reevaluation. Um, and that's what makes us better and stronger each day. That's really interesting. I especially think that your point about curating your follower list is something I've never heard before. Because I think, in general, people think the more people that follow you, especially on Instagram or Facebook, the more likes you have, the better it is. But maybe not so much if it's, you know, people from, you know, a foreign country who are just following whoever or their fake accounts, you know what I mean? There's, there's so much of that. And mm-hmm. I think that we've learned that your interaction point is more important than your following point. Because your interaction or the people who are following through to click to see what your website has, maybe a link that you have uh, listed to if you use a specific vendor. And so you're creating data points of connection. You're creating hand-to-hand relationships Mm -hmm. that otherwise are lost. 20,000 followers, if you had 20,000 interactions with 20,000 followers, you'd be perfect. You should be writing the book on it. You should own Instagram. Just go buy it out. (laughs) But at the end of the day, that's not reality. The reality is is you may have 2,000 followers. You might engage 300 of those 2,000 followers. And out of 300, you've gotten three solid clients, hand-to-hand business out of it. Mm -hmm. You're doing pretty good. If the ratio is... 20,000 to only 300 to three clients. My question is, what are you doing wrong? Mm -hmm. So we have to look at those data points with real expectation and say, 
Where is my interaction? What is turning into hand-to-hand business? It used to be the business card drop in a bowl and people would pull it out and say, oh, I'm going to connect with this person. Mm-hmm. There are several small groups around communities that are making money on morning breakfasts and interactions. How are those turning to business? Well, Instagram has become that group. So with the same mentality of creating a small business networking group and there's only one of each profession related, you can do that with Instagram. Mm-hmm. You can do that in the digital setting you can curate it to be what you want it to be. What was the door-to-door chamber experience a few years ago has become digital uh, in the digital world, and we have to make that jump in those correlations. So do you use direct messaging then as kind of a way to further facilitate kind of a conversation with one of your followers, or do you find that you don't need to do that as much? I I would say that's probably a 50-50 split. Mm -hmm. Uh, In a lot of cases, um, we, we have done some direct messaging, but ultimately, the goal is to lead them to emailing you and making mm-hmm. that sort of first personal. It's a shame that, in some respects, that emailing is the first personal contact we make these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is the reality of what you want the follow-through to be because chances are that if they've left Instagram to email you, somewhere in between, they've established a connection to your brand. Mm-hmm. It's not just a willy-nilly sort of component. It's the same thing of if I find a beautiful car online I really like, chances are I'm going to click through to their website and begin to engage with how I design my own custom car, right? Mm-hmm. Before I even get to the dealership for their in-person experience. Think about it in the design world. If they're engaging with us on Instagram, you want there to be some kind of medium buildup to when they do make that personal connection, mm-hmm. whether it be through di- direct message or even email, even pick up the phone to call. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So how? So you mentioned um, you have some stuff coming up in the fall. So let's talk a little bit about that. So you, we touched a little bit on that you're writing a book. Do you want to? Give some more details? Sure. Uh, as much as I can, obviously. Yeah. So um, with the research degree that I mentioned that we that I finished up in May, uh, my final output was a prototype of a business workbook. Um, it's 10 chapters, and we go through strategic planning. It's as easy as laying out construction documents. We talk about networking as, as interactive as ordering your coffee at Starbucks in the morning when they say, what's your name? And you say, oh, this is Eric. Well, you've just networked, whether you realize it or not. Mm-hmm. And so the book features some of those sort of easy sort of correlations in my mind or sort of analogies. It's also combined with my own life stories and life experiences in the side columns. I think that we learn from other interactions that I know that some of the most amazing life experiences I've had thus far um, are learning from other individuals and sort of their own life experiences. So that sort of is narrated through the book as well. Um, It's under peer review at the moment, which is always a great process to hear back from your peers and going back to that feedback. And we'll start shopping it around hopefully in the fall um, and begin to start to look at publishing uh, within, I would say within the next year, that's sort of the reality um, also in the fall, in the showroom, we launch a new rug collection called Naturals by Eric Hadell. So um, it's a take on using jute and sisal hmm. um, aesthetically, but made of material that's 100% natural, cleanable, and sustainable, which is wool. Mm-hmm. I mean, wool is a, a, a product that's been around for as long as we, right. we know mankind to be. And so um, as designers, we always want to use jute and sisal because uh, it has a great feeling and has a great look, mm-hmm. but you spill red wine on it, you got to throw it out, and you <laughs> spent $3,200 on it. So we've launched this new rug collection that's about the same price point, 
um, but made of a sustainable, long-lasting material that aesthetically looks the same. I was saying, I think that's great, especially for families with young kids. Absolutely. Because it's like so you we're cannot, looking forward to that. You cannot control for a toddler. <laughs> Absolutely not. So I'm really excited to get that on the market. Um, we launched uh, the furniture line and then also our fabric line with two uh, big national partners here in the country. So um, more will be coming on that in the website in the fall. That's about all I can say about that at the That's moment. Okay. As I think it's that in development, like but it's exciting. a great. It's yeah, it's super exciting. For so us. did a lot of those partnerships um, with the fabric and the furniture lines come from your original partnership with Dover Home doing the first rug collection, or have you did you have that experience and then kind of decide that you liked it and you wanted to try and do more of it and then you know work on your networking in that regard. So can you talk about that a little bit? So the rug collection um, is a continuation of that relationship mm -hmm. with Dover Rug and Home, and that'll continue for a few years. And that was part of our agreement and, and licensing and branding together, which is so important and probably is a whole nother entire podcast conversation <laughs> in itself. Um, but ultimately, it did lead the way to begin conversation and further develop with other manufacturers. One of the problems that we run into as designers is they sort of just think of us as willy-nilly. And so I have this great idea. I have no idea how to put it together. You need to make it work, manufacturer A. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, the first thing they're going to do is shoot you down because why should they waste their time? There were 36 others who tried to approach them with their grand idea as well. Coming, having the experience and understanding manufacturing in any form, whether it be uh, in a rug form with wool and silk, or it be in textile or in furniture development, um, at the end of the day, there is a mutual respect for the idea, the business, and the hand that creates it. Um, and so working through that process of all three is probably the success of being able to launch more and hopefully continue more mm -hmm. um, and developing more. Um, throughout the, the next few years. So with developing a product line, how do you come up with your inspiration for the product? Like do you find, like what is that process like for you? So I started with what I know. Um, what I know is good quality. Um, it's a commitment to service and it's a development of a beautiful product. And that was the natural choice in choosing to work with Dover Rug and Home and also the choice in the other two lines that we've launched. Um, the inspiration for the aesthetic really comes from within. It For me, I began the first collection with Dover. It's called the Carnival Collection. Growing up in Louisiana, you've all heard of Mardi Gras, mm -hmm. I assume. And so how has that inspired the pageantry, the culture, the history, the movement, the energy? And I could go on and on. How has that inspired uh, my thought as a designer? And so how did that translate into what the rugs were? Uh, and the three rugs that we sort of launched in that collection in multiple colorways are called Masquerade, mm -hmm. appropriately for Mardi Gras. Yep. Second line, which would be a collection of music and individuals creating one path forward. Uh, and the third is Streetcar, mm -hmm. um, knowing New Orleans. And if you know anything about Tennessee Williams, the streetcar named Desire was a huge inspiration. And it's also a large part of the path of the way the parades actually move. Mm -hmm. They move down the streetcar line. So those three were hugely influential. Those concepts were influential in developing that, that design. I look at the second collection, the Naturals collection, and the inspiration is where I am today, here in New England. Um, we have this wonderful sensibility. Mm -hmm. We have this wonderful need for flexibility. And we have this wonderful need for an understanding that life moves beyond one day. 
Um, one day we might be in the city, the next day we might be in the suburb, the next day we might be at the beach. Um, I think when I look across the country, New Englanders are probably the most flexible with their spaces because they're constantly changing with our seasons and how we live. And so in developing this product, this natural line, to me that's what it was about. It was about creating um, something that was better than what we had, um, but allows us to be flexible. It could be city living, it could be suburb, it could be the beach, um, and still be at a great price point. It could be incredibly dynamic. Uh, and really grow with us as we move and change. I think that's amazing, actually. It's a bit, it sounds like you really put a lot of thought into it. And I think got, just based on listening to you now, really got like what I feel is a very core you know, sensibility of New Englanders. I'm actually not from New England either, but I find that to be the same thing, that people here are actually fairly flexible, even though they have a reputation of not being flexible. I have not found that to be the case, personally. I think they're forced to be, whether yeah. you, you like, whether they <laughs> like to admit it, or whether they like to admit it, or we like to admit it as transplants. Um, you know, because it's such an area that's focused on education and healthcare, those are ever-changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those components sort of force that hand. But think about even the climate. The climate here forces so much. Mm-hmm. One day we are in shorts and tank tops, and yesterday I was in a sweater, and it's right. the middle of June. So at the end of the day, we're sort of all over the place, and so we're, we're constantly forced to be changing here, I think, unlike any other region of the country. Well, speaking of change, um, you are based in um, downtown Boston or the Seaport area, right? And I'm sure you've been seeing a lot of the change going on in that area of Boston, and I heard someone say the other day there's going to be uh, 40,000 new residential units in um, the city of Boston specifically in the next, I think, 10 years or something like that. How do you think that is going to change design from a residential standpoint in New England? Well, I'd like to start off and say that it's been an incredible change. Um, I got here 10 years ago and remember going to the design center for the very first time on the MBTA and really saying, oh my God, where am I? Um, it used to be shell parking lots, yeah. and by all accounts, if you're following any of the Whitey Bulger stuff, it's where a lot of the bidding would happen. And so Jamestown Properties came in and is really redeveloping where the design center is, and we've now rebranded with the city and the seaport and Four Point Channel areas, the Innovation and Design District. And so by brand, we're recreating this new experience. And so I think that's been the focus of creating that area and building out that area is creating experience. And so that leads us into needing residential Mm -hmm. components. I think we're going to see a huge push of people coming out of the suburbs. We're already starting to see uh, baby boomers come back into Mm -hmm. the city, which for a long time, the development was very fearful that we'd never see that. So we're seeing that component. But we're also seeing emerging professionals and young people be engaged Uh, in luxury living uh, at a really moderate price. I won't say it's affordable because uh, it's moderate to upper, but the average age moving into the seaport right now is 28 to 32. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing this great amount of young people really creating this great vibe. There's a need and desire for design at even their level. Um, We're not always waiting for the baby boomer. We're not always counting on the 1%. Um, there is still a desire for this, what we'll say, millennial perspective to have design. And so we'll continue to see that develop. 
Um, I have several clients who are just have rental properties, but even in rental these days, they're allowed to make modifications within recent. And so they're bringing in designers to do that. Mm -hmm. I have three projects in the high rises downtown Seaport, um, and they're all rental, but we're making the decisions now and investment that when they move to their next place, they'll bring the expensive sideboard and the upholstered bed that we purchased. Sure, they can't bring the wallpaper, but mm-hmm. for them, that's disposable. And so we begin to see the dynamics of design make decisions. And we we begin to see those decisions as being decisions that can move forward with them and grow to build their collection. No one can go in and just drop a six-figure budget and furnish everything at once six times in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, even the 1% doesn't want to do that anymore um, because to them it's a, a waste of money. It's not a good investment. So if we starting at that millennial perspective that's moving into the city uh, and teach them and educate them about these investment pieces, so we sort of see that. And that's changing design the most, I think. Yeah, I saw, I was reading something yesterday um, about design trends that we want to go away and one of them was disposable furniture basically like the Ikea type furniture, even though it has its place for certain applications, that you know that trend is hopefully kind of going away a little bit and people are coming a little bit back to, you know, a hundred years ago when you would have the same dining room table, you know, be passed down through three generations of a family. And, you know, those pieces become more like heirloom pieces. It seems like that people are coming around to that a little bit, especially as you find that you mentioned educating, you know, the millennial generation or the younger kids, but do you think that they understand that and are kind of open to that idea? I think what they understand more than anything is the value of their dollar. Mm. I think we have a generation of individuals who, for the first time in history, understands the value of every hour they put into their workforce uh, and what that turns around in ROI. And we as business owners have to meet them where they are. So does it make sense to invest, uh, you know, $300 in a piece that in six months falls apart and you got to spend another $300? Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? If you keep repeating that over the course of a year, uh, two years, you're probably going to spend $2,500 replacing this piece that is just falling apart. Or you're going to be incredibly frustrated. Mm -hmm. And so why not make the investment up front? Or why not save for that investment? And that's really that high-low mix of design, which is, I think, more in the realm of reality of where we are today. Every piece can't be the $100,000 dining table. Mm -hmm. Trust me, I'd love to sell 20 of those all day, (laughs) every day. Uh, I could retire at 40. Um, But it's not reality to where we are because we're seeing that, that ROI being such an important portion of the process. What do you think that your clients in that particular bracket are most likely to, you know, go a little extra money-wise or spend a little bit more on? Is there like something that strikes you like, yes, they always want to buy a better sofa or something like that? It's funny. I um, I actually have this conversation with all my clients, whether they're top, no budget, or bottom with only $10,000. Wherever it works is where we spend the money. Uh, I think the core belief as a designer is that you never spend the money on the sofa. Um, I can feel manufacturers behind me wanting to claw me down if they listen to this <laughs> podcast. But you know, at the end of the day, the sofa is meant to be lived on and loved on and updated every three to five years. Mm-hmm. Um, but a really good, solid, comforting reading chair mm-hmm. with an ottoman is an investment of a lifetime because you're going to recover that and your child's going to recover that and you're going to pass it along to them. Um, 
you know, if you find a beautiful antique somewhere, invest in that because it has value, it has meaning, it has history. It, it gives a life to your world around you that you don't even realize sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I think the investment comes in in those pieces. It comes in in artwork that you'll have for a long time. It naturally comes in in a rug. Rug is art, thing, yeah. right? Rug is art. I feel and like you, especially in New England where everybody has hardwood floors, like a good rug is a very solid investment. It's a solid investment. You will get like a good 10 to 20 years out of a very good quality rug. And in most cases, you can resell it for mm -hmm. full value or even a little bit more than what you paid. So again, like art, it, it acquires value over time if you invest in a beautiful oriental, per se. Mm -hmm. I actually encourage at all costs that clients engage themselves and make smart decisions in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. um, beds and mattresses are by far some of the most underutilized points of where we place our investment. Mm -hmm. We spend more of our time in our bed than we do on any other piece of furniture in the house. And oftentimes people are willing to run to the big box store, buy some inexpensive piece, mm -hmm. terrible mattress, and just suck it up. Well, we learn through healthy environments that sleep is so important. Mm -hmm. Balance is so important. Well, that all stems around your rest as, a, as an individual. And so designing for healthy environment and looking at the impacts of the design world and what we can do, it's absolutely the best place to spend the most amount of money mm -hmm. because you spend the most amount of time there. So if it means you have to buy a very nice bed and an inexpensive mattress for the start, know that you need to replace that mattress soon enough with something that you really like. Mm -hmm. And there are great options out there. There are several big box stores. I do send clients to, to choose mattresses. I don't buy a mattress for someone. That's such a personal oh, experience. Yeah. Um, but I'll be the first person to design a beautiful bed for them mm -hmm. to put that mattress on. Um, and I think it's probably the, by far, next to a rug or artwork, one of the best investments you can make in a house. That's very great advice. So I also know in your history that you were the past ASID president. Um, how did it feel to be a male leading what is predominantly a female-driven profession? What's interesting is I actually look at, at it as an honor, um, really, and sort of a humbling experience to sort of lead my colleagues, many of which are uh, much more seasoned, as I say, uh, in the profession. Um, than I was at the time. I was very lucky to be elected the youngest president in the New England chapter's history uh, at 29 and actually serve a year and a half uh, and have many conversations across the process about male versus female and sort of the roots we take and, and what we value. Um, most people don't realize this, but in the uh, up until the early 90s, most of the industry was heavily male-dominated um, and through some social justice uh, issues or sort of health crises, we'll call it, um, it became a very female-dominated industry, which really made a demand for us to create a more legitimized profession. And so I think for me, understanding that history and embracing that, um, the origin of design was um, really established by one woman, Mrs. Parrish Hadley, uh, and, um, or, or Mrs. Parrish, and then created uh, her with Parrish Hadley, um, her and Albert really diving off and then becoming a very male-dominated industry and then seeing the turn again to very female-dominated. I think it's been interesting to uh, hear the voices and the need for women to really uh, be treated as equal uh, professionals um, compared to their architectural colleagues or so on and so forth, 
we see more and more of our women um, going into the profession with a more um, rigid approach. They're not necessarily um, going out and being the best friend with good taste. They're really looking at this as a nine to five or nine to 10 o'clock at night <laughs> profession, raising children, making decisions, making a great impact, leading companies, um, and really driving what was once a frivolous uh, perception of our industry into a very positive um, realm of professional growth. I think we sometimes struggle too in this industry with um you know, what, what people have, people's idea of what interior design is or architecture is, you know, they see what's on TV maybe and watch, you know, HGTV all day long or um, maybe, you know, somebody that, you know, had a interior designer at one point. But I actually wonder sometimes too if that's why you see a little bit less diversity among interior design and architecture as well is because people don't always know what that job actually is. Like I can actually say for myself that I didn't, I had preconceived notions of what an interior designer was until I was 24 and thought it was just, you know, window treatments and fabrics and then met a couple interior designers and realized it's a lot more than that. And um, it's just very interesting to me that it, there definitely seems to be a little bit of a shift, but some of that I'm sure you imagine or you've experienced is a little bit of, you know, changing people's preconceived notions now of what an, an interior designer does. Do you find that that's sometimes a struggle? Like they have an, an idea of either how much something should cost or how the process should go based on friends or media? I think that we as a profession and our professional organizations such as the American Society of Interior Designers or the International Interior Design Association, IIDA, or making great strides in combating of sorts and changing that perspective of what an interior designer does or what's the value of an interior designer. Um, right now, we are really going through an accreditation. I'm very fortunate to sit with the National Educational Committee and really reevaluate that conversation in a direct way. The hope is that it will trickle down to the consumer who will eventually um, understand the value of what we do and also the value of the product that we bring to the project. So then in turn, there won't be these conversations of what do you mean it costs X amount of dollars mm -hmm. to do this? What do you mean it, it, this is the time it takes to do it. I can't do it for a thousand dollars in 24 hours. Those are always my favorite. Um, you know, TV has a great way of sensationalizing any industry. Uh, I try to equate the fact that people watch ER, so now they can diagnose themselves. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, they watch Scandal, so they can fully um, advise themselves legally out of any <laughs> situation or, you know, SVU, and they know how to solve a murder. Right. So it, it's sort of the same component. We have to get to a point where conversation is about what is the value or what is the impact of interior design? What is it really doing? We're seeing research support that. Um, from the prospective organizations, we're seeing media coverage be a little bit more positive in favor. I think we have a responsibility as designers to also infuse some education into, into the process. I go back to our conversation a few minutes ago about the millennial perspective, the Boston Globe, which is a very reputable and very uh, recognizable uh, publication, produced an article uh, in the interior design section all about brown furniture is dead. Millennials mm -hmm. don't want antiques. And I actually took it upon myself and I called uh, a great colleague who's a photographer and I said, so I want to pull together my own bedroom 
Um, it's fantastic. And lacquered Kelly Green walls and brown furniture and antiques. And mm-hmm. I want to prove that as a millennial, there's still a place for this. And we did. We pulled the article together. We got a writer and we published in the Sunday Globe magazine that bedroom with antiques and brown furniture and history and story. And it felt modern and it felt fresh. And it was an opportunity to re-educate a small consumer base Mm -hmm. that reads that. And I think that's the steps we have to take. We have to take it upon ourselves um, to sort of create that evolution of what we want the profession to be and I think looking at my time as president of ASID is that's what I value the most is having the conversations with with colleagues across the region about how we can continue to value and move the industry forward and create dialogue that means business Mm -hmm. Uh, going back to the core belief of what our conversation began today is the value of business and the value of business is about authenticity it's about uh, integrity and it's about that approachability whether it be in my personal brand or a brand of the interior design industry well, Eric, thank you so much for being here. This was a very great and insightful conversation. I really appreciate you joining me. Thank you for having me in any time. Thank you for listening to DesignWise. This podcast is sponsored by Hawthorne Builders. Please check out our website for more information. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to rate us on iTunes. Until next time.